X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Emily Gilliland from Portland, Oregon, and it's Friday, July 2nd. This is our last show before we just take a little time to enjoy the summer. Please be sure to subscribe to The Local on your favorite podcast platform, so we'll jump right back into your feed when we get restarted. Thanks for listening. We'll be back soon with more news and interviews to inform your day. But before we take that break, we've got some history to talk about. It's time for Today Back in the Day. X-Ray. Today Back in the Day on July 2nd, 1935, Ashland hosted the first ever Oregon Shakespeare Festival. Twelfth Night opened the festival and was also performed two nights later to close it. A performance of The Merchant of Venice was sandwiched in between. Founded by Southern Oregon University drama professor Angus L. Baumer, the first OSF only had a budget of $400. That's about $8,000 in today's money. The festival was also forced to feature boxing matches to cover the assumed deficit. With reserved tickets going for a dollar and general admission going for 50 cents, the shows actually ended up covering the losses of the fights. Today, it features over 800 performances per year, and it's not just Shakespeare. It also has an annual budget of $32 million. Over 400,000 tickets are sold each year, and over 20 million people have seen a performance since its inception 86 years ago today. And today, back in the day, on July 2nd, 1964, President Lyndon Johnson signed the Civil Rights Act into effect. The landmark bill outlawed discrimination based on race, color, religion, sex, and national origin. This meant you could no longer discriminate in hotels, theaters, restaurants, and other public accommodations. Public schools and public facilities would also have to be desegregated. Protection of voting rights was covered, even though that portion is still under attack today. It was originally proposed by President Kennedy in June of 1963, but was filibustered against and stopped in the Senate. After his assassination in November of 1963, President Johnson made it a priority to push the bill through. When it was brought before the Senate once more in March of 1964, Southern Dixiecrats filibustered again for two months. Finally, a slightly weaker version was approved that limited the government's power to regulate private businesses. That was the longest continuous debate in Senate history. Today, we'll start with your quick six news headlines, and we have an interview with author Tyler Kelly on his new book on climate change, Holding Back the River. First up, it's time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Advocates for Oregon farm workers are demanding emergency heat wave rules after a person has died on Saturday. The man who has not yet been identified was found unconscious at the end of his shift at the Ernst Nursery and Farms. Temperatures in St. Paul, where the farm is located, reached 104 degrees that day. Staff at Picune, Oregon's largest farmworker union, were reportedly outraged. Reina Lopez, executive director for Picune, described the death as avoidable and said, quote, Last week, we asked to put in an emergency rule knowing that it was just going to get hotter and hotter. 
but we were met with a lot of resistance. Oregon's workplace safety agency, known as OSHA, currently has rules in place which require employers to provide workers with water, shade, and sufficient break time. But many of their guidelines for extreme weather conditions are unclear and leave the specifics up to the employers. Farm worker advocates are now urging OSHA to implement additional safety requirements, such as ensuring employers provide cold, sanitary water within 400 feet of a worksite, as well as guaranteeing that employees aren't retaliated against for choosing not to work in extreme heat. Pekun also demanded OSHA suspend farm work on days that are 90 degrees or hotter. According to Lopez, quote, We need a cap so it can be really clear to people when it's time to stop work. No one wants to take a day off work, but it's really important. We're not giving people this false choice of having to choose between their health and a paycheck. It's time for your daily dose of data. Oregon is currently averaging 7,514 COVID-19 vaccine doses a day. 69.8% of the eligible population, meaning 12 years and older, are fully vaccinated. Just 5,119 Oregonians need to get vaccinated for the state to reach an average of a 70% vaccination rate statewide. As of Thursday, over 4.2 million Oregonians remain unvaccinated. And a special shout out. 100% of Baker County's population that are 65 and older have been completely vaccinated. A church purchased Portland's Concordia University campus on Tuesday. The Lutheran Church Extension Fund bought the campus for a measly $3 million at a foreclosure sale. That's a steal considering a local real estate developer had previously valued the campus at $50 million. Ironically, the purchaser is an affiliate of the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, which previously owned Portland's Concordia University, as well as several other Concordia colleges across the U.S. But the Portland location gave investors an issue that the college, other colleges didn't, Students here were largely supportive of gay rights. Repeatedly, the administration faced a battle between students and the school's deeply conservative owners. According to Oregon Live, the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod, quote, bemoaned the pro-gay attitudes in Portland. And in February of last year, after continuous pushback from students to make Concordia more inclusive, investors pulled out altogether and the school formally shut down. At the time of its closure, roughly 5,000 students were enrolled. The Clark County Jail has repeatedly sent ICE private information about their incarcerated population. On Thursday, OPB reported that they had discovered records of a nearly constant interaction between the Clark County Jail and ICE. Clark County staff sent ICE private information about the people incarcerated at the jail, including their birth dates, home addresses, and race. And according to OPB, the majority of the people ICE requested information on are Latino. In five different cases, the information ICE received from Clark County staff led to them formally submitting requests to detain someone. 
Simon, who asked to use a pseudonym, said his brother was detained by ICE before he even left Clark County Jail. After Simon posted his brother's $35,000 bail, he waited for hours for his brother to be released. He later discovered that Clark County staff had allowed ICE into a restricted area inside the jail. Simon's brother was deported to Mexico shortly after. Emails later showed Clark County staff cheering ICE agents on, including one staff member who wrote, quote, Great job. Go get him. Parts of Oregon are under air quality advisories as wildfires begin to climb up the West Coast. The Oregon Department of Environmental Quality, or DEQ, issued advisories for Lakeview and Klamath Falls yesterday after smoke from two wildfires in Northern California drifted upstate. According to DEQ, the Salt Fire in Redding and the Lava Fire in Siskiyou County now cover over 17,000 acres, and neither are slowing down. Officials say the combination of high temperatures and dry brush have made the fires virtually uncontrollable, with local firefighters reporting that they've contained just 19% of the area. Both wildfires are said to have been caused by a thunderstorm that occurred last weekend. And finally, some good news. The Portland Thorns have officially signed Olivia Moultrie. Moultrie, a 15-year-old prodigy, began practicing with the team three years ago, but was barred from joining because she was under 18. She later filed a lawsuit against the Northwest Women's Soccer League, claiming that the age rule hindered her ability to develop her skills. She also said the rule weakened her chances for qualifying for the U.S. national team someday. According to Moultrie, quote, every coach has told me there's a lot you can do in training, but where you really grow and mature as a player is in games. Roughly a month ago, a judge finally granted Moultrie the right to play in adult leagues, but it wasn't until yesterday that she was officially signed. She will play in her first league match this Saturday against a team from Louisville. And that's today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Climate change is exposing our country's greatest vulnerabilities through floods, hurricanes, and general water supply mismanagement. Here to talk to us about what went wrong and what needs to change is the author of the new book, Holding Back the River, Tyler J. Kelly. Tyler, how are you today? I'm well, Nebraska. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. So just to start off, can you give us a quick rundown on how we got to where we are in our infrastructure crisis? Well, I guess basically we haven't built very much in the last 50 years. So, you know, most infrastructure was constructed in the New Deal into the 1960s. That's when it seems like the country had this appetite for, you know, grandiose public works. Um, And so everything that we have on the ground now more or less reflects a set of assumptions about the climate and a set of social assumptions about, you know, what's important, who's in power, whose values are imposed on whom that are about 50 years old. So I think we have a system that is outdated in many ways, physically outdated in that much of it's falling apart and also sort of um, morally and um, in terms of climate outdated. Yeah, I can I can absolutely see that, especially because there are some people that still don't believe that climate change is an issue. So I can see how 50 years ago, probably more people thought that and built accordingly. Um, how sustainable were the first U.S. river management projects? 
Well, sustainable is an interesting word. I mean, they succeeded in, you know, keeping floodwaters off people's land and they succeeded in um, allowing navigation, reliable navigation on a bunch of these big rivers. And so that, again, was the objective. And so at the time, um, you know, destruction of habitat, um, you know, ecosystem services, endangered species, none of that was important. So in that sense, they've continued to deliver those benefits. Um, you know, there's vast swaths of the middle of the country that are habitable only because of these levees that keep the water from flooding, uh, you know, the river's historic floodplain. And so that has worked. And, you know, commodities continue to move on the river, and that works also um, to a point. So in a sense, is it sustainable? You know, I think I think the rivers are rising, and so I think if we want to protect um, these portions of the country that are vulnerable to flooding, no, that part of it is not sustainable and I think needs to be reimagined because the risk has increased while the structures that are you know, built to hold back this water have, have remained the same. Absolutely, and how do you think the mismanagement of rivers affect regular people? Well, I think, I think there are two parts of the country, to put it very crudely. Um, the part of the country that has too much water, which is sort of um, east of the 100th meridian, and the part of the country that has not enough water, say west of the 100th meridian. And so I think both of those um, parts of the country are suffering from mismanagement or maybe, to be more charitable, short-sighted management. But in the west, I think people are living with an assumption that there is more water available than there is. And so that's going to be a hard reality to face. How do you live? Um, how do you continue the way of life that you're used to with less water? And I think in, in the eastern half of the country, it's the opposite. So how do you continue your way of life in a wetter world? And I think people are going to have to give up something in both cases. Right. The Willamette and Columbia Rivers are Portland's lifeblood. What is the current state of these rivers? Well, to be honest, my book mostly focused on the Mississippi River and its tributaries. So <clears throat> I'm not that familiar with the Willamette and Columbia. I know there's some interesting um, talk about uh, dams and sort of reimagining the Columbia in terms of what these dams are for. Could we take the dams down? Are the dams still serving their purpose? And I think there's it's an interesting it's an interesting study in, you know, this, this sort of Columbia River Basin um, Association that's talking about, you know, kind of checking in on the purposes that the Columbia was, you know, wrangled, managed, confined to serve and saying, are those still purposes we value? Um, so I think there's some interesting work being done, probably more progressive work being done on the Columbia uh, than on rivers like the Mississippi or the Ohio or the Missouri. Absolutely. Well, you mentioned the Mississippi River. What is the state of the Mississippi right now? Well, the I mean, the Mississippi is, is flowing. So in that sense, you know, if you want to think of it as an anthropomorphic entity, the Mississippi is, is probably doing fine. Um, you know, it's got more fertilizer in it than it used to. It has fewer fish species in it than it used to. Um, but it's still uh, flowing more or less to the sea. Um, I guess probably the better question is how are the communities who live along the Mississippi faring? And I think they're probably increasingly at risk. And so in a sense, I think of the river as kind of an indifferent entity that, you know, for millions of years has flowed to the sea, delivered its you know sediment and water here or there. But I think it's 
it's our sort of frail civilization that's only, you know, been encamped along the river for <clears throat> a few hundred years that might be at risk. And so for people that are still unwilling to see this as a problem, what do you think is the biggest block in their mind preventing them from recognizing the severity of the situation? Yeah, um, I think it's a matter of, I guess, politicization of language. You know, the phrase climate change is still a real trigger for people in conservative parts of the country. And I think, honestly, if you want to work with those people as a policymaker, you have to sort of meet them where they are. And so I've been in rooms, you know, with conversations with officials who say, okay, there's more water. We all can agree there's more water. Okay, so what can we do about it? And I think you can start the conversation there. And there are a lot of things you could get done without attributing a cause to the increase in water, right? If you're trying to meet these people where they are. So I think, I think there's nothing wrong with trying to solve problems that way, saying, okay, you're here on the river, no matter who you voted for, uh, no matter what you believe the cause is, there is more water. You're not denying that because you see it every day. So let's work together and try to create a solution, you know, to deal with this extra water. Okay, yeah, kind of personalizing the issue and avoiding these, like you said, trigger words that have become so politicized, people have actually forgotten their original meaning. Exactly. And so I, I talked with a, a really uh, smart guy at the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. And he's, you know, he's from Maryland. He's kind of from the East Coast, you know, kind of intellectual political scene, I think. But he spent, you know, his whole career on this Mississippi River Commission going through deep red, you know, middle America. And he said, we didn't put, we don't put climate change. We don't say climate change on these weather reports that we put out, because if we did, most of the people in the valley would stop reading at the cover. So we have to just say, there's more water, here's the data, we're laying it out black and white, and then we can go from there. I, I thought that was really, um, really re a revelation for me, um, that, you know, that, that level of pragmatism and saying we have to work with people who, for whatever reason, they don't want to talk about this, they don't want to use these words, they don't agree with this side of the conversation, so we have to meet them where they are. Absolutely. Yeah, I think compromise is something that can be difficult sometimes, but even a small compromise such as changing word choice has a huge effect because at the end of the day, we all have the same goal, and that is to stay safe regardless of the way that climate change continues to impact us, right? Absolutely. So what role do politicians play in improving our infrastructure? I mean, really, they play the role, the key role, because all of this is determined by legislation coming out of, you know, Congress. And so I think the, the president and his infrastructure ideas currently, he's a he, um, have a lot of impact. But above all, it's, it's bills, it's legislation, it's wording in documents coming out of Congress. And I think there's actually some pretty hopeful stuff in um, the 2020 Water Resources Bill, which came out in December. And for some reason, it didn't get much media attention. But there's some interesting talk in there about sort of reimagining um, flood control systems, about prioritizing disadvantaged communities, um, about reimagining, you know, our relationship to the floodplain, moving levees back from the river. And I, I was really impressed by reading um, the text of that bill. I think I think the question will be, how do you implement that? Because, of course, there's hard decisions that go along with all those ideas. Um, and the bill doesn't explain, you know, how do you grapple with those hard decisions? So I guess 
part A is the legislation and then part B is the implementation. So how do you do that? How do agencies do that? How does the federal government move this stuff from, you know, legislation to reality? Right. But politicians have a humongous role to play, Absolutely. local and national, I think. And you mentioned flooding, and it seems like natural disasters are becoming more and more frequent every single year. How do rivers affect areas where natural disasters are becoming more common? Well, I guess, you know, a natural disaster in many cases puts water on the ground, right? Uh, whether it's a hurricane or even, you know, just a really wet pattern of rainstorms, um, which, you know, we're getting in the eastern half of the U.S. increasingly. And so it just it's just more water is more flooding, higher rivers more of the time. Um, and then when you get onto the coast, of course, you're talking about storm surge, which is a different sort of source, but um, it's also flooding. So it's just all the structures we've built assume this notion of like, okay, a hundred year flood. Someone at some point calculated, this is how high we think the water will get, you know, uh, a one in 100 chance of reaching this point. But I think all those numbers are out the window. And so I think we really need to look again at risk and how vulnerable are these locations. And I think a lot of those numbers are going to change or should be changed because the risk has increased. And it's just, you know, very crudely, more water. Um, and then, of course, on the western half of the country, it's less water. Uh, and I think anybody over there now can attest to that. Um, we've made assumptions there about we're going to have this much rainfall, so we can do this and we can do that, and this entity can get this water over here, and this person can irrigate their uh, potato field over there. And I think, again, those assumptions are out the window now, and we don't really know what's going on. So we have to reassess all of that. I love the point that you just made about throwing out the window these, oh, it'll happen, you know, in a hundred years or something like that, because we really did all grow up hearing that, you know, here in Portland, we grew up hearing about the big one, this, you know, apparently massive earthquake that was going to just completely discombobulate us. And it was kind of a joke, oh, our infrastructure is in no way prepared for it. But that is a reality. It doesn't, you know, it needs to be more than just a passing comment. It needs to be us actually sitting down and understanding, like you said at the very beginning, the infrastructure we have in place is decades old at this point. And I'm guessing that a lot of these places are far more populated than they were decades ago. And so that's just risk upon risk, right? Absolutely. That's a good way of putting it. And, you know, we, I look at the Netherlands in my book, and that's, I guess, kind of an obvious place to go. They're the best water managers in the world, but they build things to deal with a risk that has a one in 1200 chance of occurring or a one in 10,000 chance of occurring, depending on um, what kind of structures and what kind of uh, assets they're protecting. But just, you know, that level of protection, that level of foresight is sort of unimaginable in the United States. The Netherlands are looking at weather 200 years in the future. And they're saying, what can we do to protect yourself from weather from the year 2200? And, you know, how can we have this much protection? What's a one in 10,000 occurrence and how protected are we? Whereas, as you said, we're, we're not even at one in 100 anymore. So we're really behind, I think, when it comes to assessing risk. And I'm not at all saying that everyone should have 10,000 year protection. Everyone should have a giant wall in front of them who lives along the river. That's not sustainable. That's not affordable, that's not possible, but I think it's really important to know the risk, um, whether or not you're going to build a giant structure to 
guard against it or not. And I don't think we do know the risk right now. Absolutely. So what types of measures should people support or campaign for if they are concerned about our infrastructure? I guess I, at first, was really interested in the crumbling infrastructure conversation that was going on more so in the 2016 election. Everyone was talking about crumbling infrastructure, crumbling infrastructure. But now I think really that the emphasis on crumbling sort of implies that we should build everything back just as it was. And I think that is a mistake as we've discussed. And so I would resist, I, I think people should resist this, this sort of narrative that everything's falling apart and it needs to be all of it rebuilt. Because um, I don't think that's true either that it's all falling apart or that it should be rebuilt. I think there's a lot of structures that are not in too bad of shape, but probably we should tear them down, um, that we don't need them anymore, that they're not serving their purpose and maybe never did. And so I think that uh, is the right way to think about infrastructure right now. And so, Tyler, before we let you go, what other ways can regular folks help to keep the river safe? I guess if you live along the river, if you do business on the river, if you interact with the river, um, try to be as pragmatic as you can, as realistic as you can about what is happening on that river. Um, Try to notice, uh, try to pay attention and try to take action, you know, when it comes to whether it's, you know, your livelihood, whether it's the ecology, whether it's just as a, as a boater or a fisherman or someone who lives beside the river and, you know, is worried about flooding. Um, I think it's just a matter of awareness and just sort of paying attention. I don't mean to condescend to anyone who, who goes by the river. I think regular folks who go by the river know more about it than almost anybody. Um, but I, I grew up in Minnesota and Minneapolis, and we would just sort of look at the river, and it was always there. Uh, we never really thought much about it. Um, we didn't think about where it was coming from or where it was going. Um, and we definitely didn't think about what uh, kind of unnatural construct the river really was. Uh, and so I think just sort of stepping back and realizing the river hasn't always been the way it is now, and it won't always be that way. It isn't an inevitability. It isn't even really natural in, you know, in, in that sense of the word. And so I think that is important to realize. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Tyler J. Kelly, thank you so, so much. For those of you just tuning in, we are here with Tyler J. Kelly, author of the book, Holding Back the River, The Struggle Against Nature on America's Waterways. Thank you so much for joining us, Tyler. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Thanks to Tyler for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in just about 30 minutes. As I mentioned at the top, we are going to be taking a quick break to enjoy some summer weather, and during that time, we're going to be doing some planning. We would love to hear your feedback about The Local. What do you like about the show? What could we do differently? We'd love to hear from you. Please send us an email at thelocal at xray.fm. A big thanks to our production team. They are a very hardworking group. Our executive editor, Will Romy. Supporting editors and writers, John Collier, Nebraska Lucas, Joey McClone, Brian Miller, Carlos Molina, Julia Oppenheimer, Carly Quadros, Miranda Selinger, and Ryder Sherwood. Thanks for the original journalism and research by the many media organizations in the Portland area, the Lund Report, Oregon Health Authority, COVID-19.healthdata.org, the 
Oregon Historical Society, Portland Tribune, Portland Business Journal, KGW, The Willamette Week, COIN, Pamplin Media, OPB, K2, The Oregonian, Statesman Journal, The Scanner, and our news partners, Portland Mercury, Street Roots, Bike Portland, and Eater PDX. We are grateful for the many media organizations in the Portland area and region who help fuel the information we share with you each day. As we close out this show and go to our quick break, we want to do a one last thanks to democracy, and we'll talk to you soon. <laughs> 